Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. The show is up front. My name is Brian Edwards-Teeker. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to the latest developments in the world of COVID-19 news and science. Uh, our guest, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Um, we, we kind of got an answer to a question several of our listeners have put to us over the past couple months. When will there be a new booster for people who need it? Uh, in the last few days, both the New York Times and the Washington Post, citing anonymous people familiar with the decision-making process at the Food and Drug Administration, have said we are a few weeks out from that agency approving but not recommending another round of boosters for people who are 65 years and older or who have immune deficiencies and who are at least four months out from receiving their last booster. Um, it is strange for me to see agency decisions kind of trial ballooned by anonymous sources in the world of public health. This is something I'm more familiar with from environmental agencies and like military agencies. Any idea why we're reading about this in anonymously sourced articles rather than public statements from, from people in the government? Well, I've been asking myself that same question, and I don't have an answer for it. Um, maybe the anonymous sources are purposefully leaking this to, um, as you say, set up a trial balloon. Maybe they're, maybe they're just anonymous sources. I, what I do know is that there's an enormous amount of pressure on the FDA to give what's called a passive recommendation or passive permission for people to get the the booster, people who are at high risk, if it's been six months or more. So maybe this is sort of a a, a valve to decrease the pressure uh, by doing this. I, I just don't know, Brian. What kind of data do we have about how helpful such a booster might be? Not as much as we'd like, and that's that's really where the problem is. We have really good data through December. So we have, if, if most people were getting the vaccine in sometime in September or October. This is the bivalent vaccine. So we would have September, October, November, December. So that's four months. So three to four months of pretty solid data showing very good efficacy up to that period of time. Everything beyond that, we don't have strong data for yet. We have some papers that have come out that have suggested continued good efficacy against hospitalization and death beyond three to four months of time. But we don't have data out to six months. What we do have data about is previous vaccines showing that clearly immunity tends to wane within about 
what we see immunity waning within a month to two months in terms of protecting against infection and mild to moderate disease. Um, but we've seen immunity wane up at around six months for the same degree of protection against hospitalization and death. Still pretty good, but not to the same degree it was at one, two, three, four, and five months. So giving, giving that consideration, people pause and say, well, look it, uh, we don't have evidence that these vaccines do as well after six months. We have a bivalent vaccine that we, we clearly know that it works after three to four months and probably much longer. Um, why not give people who are at high risk the benefit of a boost at six months? And I think it's a reasonable argument. We have no safety signals at all. So safety is not a consideration. We have some data about efficacy, um, and we have some data that we need a booster at around six months for people who are at high risk. So I think if you mix all those together, where I come down on this is that a passive recommendation is fine or a passive permission is fine. That is saying if you want to get it at six months, doctors can prescribe it, patients can get it. And I think that's very reasonable. Again, only for people at high risk. I do want to uh, unpack your vocabulary. When you say we have no safety signals at all, you mean the, the vast amount of data gathered about uh, what happens to people after they get the vaccine has thrown up no red flags, <laughs> no, no hints of problems from getting boosters. Thank you. I, I, I shouldn't be using this um, more arcane language, but that's absolutely right. Yeah, we haven't seen anything to suggest that there's, there are increase, there's an increased risk over anything we've seen with previous vaccines with this new bivalent vaccine. I, I do have kind of a bigger picture question. The, the level of uptake on the last round of boosters, the bivalent vaccine released early last fall, was dismally low. Last I checked, it was like somewhere in the 40% range. Um, if the FDA is simultaneously feeling pressure to approve a get it if you want it round of boosting for immunosuppressed people, and the public at large is just like ignorant that there's even a new booster available, it, it suggests like this really bifurcated situation we're moving to in terms of the pandemic response where like a slice of the public is hyper vigilant and uh, the, the majority of the public is just kind of in the dark, out of the loop um, and, and not getting public health messages. Yeah, I think you know, we were talking about giving this booster, but you're absolutely right. The real, the real failure of the vaccine has been getting it into people's arms. Vaccines don't work unless you vaccinate people. And with the bivalent booster, we have roughly about 17% of the U.S. population has been vaccinated. For people 65 and over, that number goes up to a little bit over 40. I think it's 42% of the population. The former number um, represents a public health failure in messaging, but not a crisis because um, previous immunizations, previous infection is giving pretty good protection against hospitalization and death. But the latter number, the only 40% or so of people 65 and over or people with high-risk conditions are availing themselves of the vaccine, this is really concerning because 
if you look at who's hospitalized and who's dying today, it's the people who are not vaccinated and the people who are 65 and over or have underlying conditions that predispose them to a bad outcome. And here's something where we could really be preventing hospitalizations and deaths, but we haven't, we meaning public health, we meaning the government, hasn't been able to adequately convey that when you see less than half of the population who really would benefit from this bivalent vaccine getting it. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, clinical professor emeritus of infectious diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. And we, we like to use the bulk of his time to answer your questions. So if you want to call one in, the phone number is 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for your COVID questions and corona calls. I'm going to start with some questions that have come in over the past week to upfront at kpfa.org. Uh, Dr. Swartzberg, the first one comes from Lisa in San Mateo. She says, thanks for the segment. Uh, she is going to be on a 12-hour flight and wonders if it would be wise to change into a fresh mask mid-flight. That's a very interesting question. I haven't seen any studies that really address that directly. But we do know that the masks work. When, when I'm saying masks, I'm talking about an N95 or a KN95 or a KF94. Um, these use electrostatic forces as well as just filtration to capture the virus and not let it get into your body. And 12 hours is not, the masks are good for much more than 12 hours. Studies have shown at least 40 hours and other studies have suggested even longer, as long as they don't get wetter or dirty. So I think the answer for Lisa is bring a good mask that fits well and wear it. Uh, and you don't have to consider changing it six hours or eight hours. Next question comes from Raymond. No cities, no uh, city mentioned. Uh, Raymond says, I appreciate the doctor's response about air travel. This would have been in response to a question some previous week. Uh, he wants to know what we know about the safety of train travel. Well, we haven't seen nearly the number of studies from trains that we've seen from airplanes. There have been actually very few. I think the way to think about a train is think about being indoors with other people. And when I say other people, I don't know what the quantity would be, but if it's a crowded train um, car, then you're in with an awful lot of people. The air exchanges in trains cars aren't as good as the air exchanges in airplanes when the plane's in the air, not when the plane's on the tarmac. That's when the air exchanges are not good. But the air exchanges in a train are not comparable to what you have in an airplane in the air. So you're really rebreathing other people's air. So I would suggest that I think that train travel is um, a risk, and I would certainly have a mask on if I'm traveling in the train. You can look up air exchanges for different train routes. Uh, the Capital Corridor, which is one of the most ridden routes, it runs from here to Sacramento, uh, advertises that their trains get 22 air exchanges an hour. Some other Amtrak trains, uh, that's down to 12 exchanges an hour. Like, what, what, what is a good standard to look for? Well, I was not aware of that. So that, if, that data that you've just given me changes my opinion significantly. Still, I'd wear a mask, but 
12 error exchanges is excellent. 22 is outstanding. So you're in a if if your train has that kind of error exchange in your compartment, you're not rebreathing as much air once the train is moving. Okay. Well, trains are looking a little bit better than they were a couple minutes ago. Uh, uh, again, the question, the phone number to put questions to Dr. Schwartzberg, 1-800-958-9008. Go ahead, Dr. Schwartzberg. No, I was just thanking you for that information. I wasn't aware of it. Uh, next question from the inbox comes from Steve, uh, who, like me, has an itchy refresh finger and frequently looks at the uh, COVID dashboard for Alameda County. This would be through the CDC website. He's noting that it's uh, stayed pretty closely in the range of 50 to 70 confirmed cases per 100,000 over the past few months, suggesting his words, COVID has become a fact of life that could continue indefinitely. His question, what is the current public health strategy to change that? Yeah, that's a, first of all, Steve's observation is, is correct. Um, or at least that's how I see the data as well. The number of cases reported are stable. Um, that said, um, the number of cases reported aren't very worthwhile because the reporting is so poor for reasons that you and I have talked about before, Brian, especially that people are diagnosed, most people are being diagnosed with the rapid test and not reporting those results. So we really don't know about cases. If we look at hospitalizations, though, we're seeing a dip in the number of people who've been hospitalized finally. It's, it's been tenaciously staying the same or was tenaciously staying the same throughout much of the winter. But we're now starting to see that number come down, which is very encouraging. I think Steve's also correct that um, this virus is not going away. Even if we got rid of it in all humans, there, there are many, many, many uh, mammalian reservoirs for this. Uh, so it could come right back. So I think we're going to have to learn to live with this indefinitely. And I think what we're seeing from a public health standpoint is there's still a great deal of hope put into better vaccines, vaccines that can cover not only the virus, the virus variants that have existed, but anticipate the virus variants that will exist. When we get that, we'll be in much better shape. And we should be getting that. Um, the other thing we need with vaccines is that they last a lot longer. You know, we were just talking about six months for people at high risk. This is a short-term strategy. This is not a long-term strategy. We can't keep vaccinating people at six months. I guess we could, but it's not a very good strategy. A much better strategy is to have a vaccine that will work for a long period of time and that will cover not only the existing variants, but anticipated future ones. That will really help us enormously. The other thing that will help a great deal is better medications, or at least more options for medications. Uh, and that we're likely to have in the not too distant future also. Right now, the worry about being hospitalized and dying from COVID, even somebody, for example, 65 or over, so a higher risk person, if you're up to date with your vaccines, and if you have access to and can take Paxlovid, the chances of being hospitalized and dying are very, very small. And if we have other medications that could do the same, that would be great. We're also seeing some chinks in the armor of long COVID now. 
in terms of preventing that with being up to date with vaccination, taking Paxlovid as quickly as possible, and maybe, and I'll underline maybe, the use of metformin. So we may have ways to prevent long COVID as well. So I think the longer term strategies are likely through medications and vaccines. From a public health standpoint, clearly we can't live like we lived in uh, like we lived three, three years ago at this time of the year where we were in lockdown or even in more serious mandated, mandated masking and social distancing situations. So we're going to have to find another way to live. And I think right now we're seeing society somewhat to use the word you used earlier, Brian, bifurcated. And that is we're seeing people at low risk, younger, healthy people behaving in a certain way and older people behaving in another way because of the risk. And we have to find a way to eliminate that bifurcation. All right, let's go to the phone lines. First up, we have Peter in Berkeley. Good morning, Peter. Uh, good morning. Uh, I have just a brief statement I'd like to read based on research I've done on the question of the effectiveness of a second booster. Uh, simply Googling that question uh, brought me to a study. P by Peter, we, we, we open the phone lines for questions, not Google questions results. Do you have a okay. question? I do have a question. Uh, I'm 81 years old. Uh, I have very significant asthma, and I'm a little confused by what is meant by high risk. I hear the phrase uh, or the word immunocompromised, uh, and I know that that you know, covers people who've had uh, transplanted organs and so forth. But would someone uh, with substantial asthma be considered a high-risk person? I'm glad you asked that question, Peter, because when we say high-risk, it really, and just say it's people 65 or over, people with underlying conditions, it, it's really such a broad brush that it, includes a lot of people who probably aren't at high risk and a lot of people who are at very, very, very high risk and everything in between. So there's a spectrum there. A healthy 65-year-old, a healthy 70-year-old, a healthy 75-year-old um, may not be nearly as high risk as an unhealthy 50-year-old. So some of, some of this has to be just your own judgment. What I would say is that we're very, we have very good data that um, people with certain underlying conditions are at high risk and significantly high risk. And you mentioned people who've had a transplant or who are immunosuppressed for other reasons. Those folks are at very high risk. People who are obese are at high risk. People who have chronic lung disease, that would include serious asthma, not just occasional asthma, but serious asthma, people with chronic heart conditions, these folks are at high risk at any age. So I think the practical answer to your question is ask your doctor. Uh, your doctor should know your health conditions quite well and can answer that question for you. 81, yes, uh, you're at higher risk than somebody who's 61 or 71. Uh, how much higher risk is really dependent upon your underlying condition. If you have pretty serious asthma, I think that puts you at a higher risk right there. Somebody to be really careful. So, so Dr. Schwartzberg, I'd love you to clarify the age question because my understanding had been 
apart from any medical conditions uh, whose likelihood goes up as you age, there's something called immunosenescence, which is that uh, as we get older, our immune systems just slow down a little bit. They would leave us more vulnerable to something like COVID. That's right. And that's why we say people 65 or over, some people say 50 or over, we're starting to see immunosenescence. Just the aging of our immune system, like the aging of everything else. I think everybody who's older knows that if you get a cut, it just doesn't heal as quickly. Well, the same thing happens as when you're attacked by the virus that causes COVID. You're not going to be able to handle it as well. So, yes, older people are at increased risk. What we don't know and we haven't seen good data on is an old, older, healthy person versus an older, unhealthy person, how much difference that makes. So clearly immunosenescence plays a role, and that's why I think it's reasonable when we talk about high risk to put older people in that category. All right, let's go to Hayward for our next call. Harry is on the line. Good morning, Harry. Good morning. I'd like to talk to you about uh, some lax COVID. I have a nephew who is in his 70s, and he was fully vaccinated, including bivalent, and he got, uh, he suddenly got uh, sold a fairly high uh, level uh, COVID. And he immediately started his lax COVID, uh, lax COVID. And it was full thing of, uh, he had very light uh, asthma condition but before, but he doesn't have it. So he doesn't meet that uh, being intense. But uh, he took it for the full five days. But then uh, two days after that, he went negative. But then he went positive again. And I was wondering, uh, also we were wanting to know about can it, uh, how will lax COVID help to prevent uh, long COVID? So just to, to clarify terms, what you're describing is something called rebound. The Paxlovid doesn't quite kick the infection, so you test positive after you finish your course, and your symptoms may come back a little bit. That, that is different from long COVID, which is yeah, symptoms that might persist also, for months after you clear the infection. Does does your nephew have long COVID as well? No, he he's fine now. It's great. Okay, that's that. good to hear, Harry. Yeah, let's let's put your question to Dr. Schwartzberg. Um, let let's start at the end of his compound question. Uh, the evidence that taking Paxlovid helps with the likelihood of getting long COVID. Right. We don't have as strong of evidence as one would like to see, but a well-designed paper showed that it reduced the risk of long COVID by 26%. That's pretty good. Um, we have not great evidence, but is, but good, fairly good evidence that being up to date like Harry's nephew with the most recent bivalent vaccine does reduce the risk of long COVID. The percentages of that aren't really clear. So we, we do have those two tools to reduce the risk of long COVID. Um, and that's, so that's the current answer to Harry's question. I mentioned earlier metformin, um, a very well-designed study still in preprint suggested that taking metformin would reduce the risk of long COVID. Um, 
If taken within the first five days, that study showed a risk reduction for long COVID of around 40%. And if taken um, very quickly within the first couple days, it reduced it by about 62%. So um, potential tool there, not ready for prime time at this point. That uh, that paper's not been peer-reviewed yet, but it is one of the few randomized controlled trials on what various drugs would do to prevent long COVID. They tested other drugs. Uh, like I think they even used that, that dewormer everyone was excited about a year ago, ivermectin, and found no results for them. The, the big study on Paxlovid, which has been peer-reviewed, was an observational study. They're basically just mining a patient records database at the Veterans Administration. So you can't rule out the possibility that some of that 26% is just placebo effect. People who know they've gotten the Paxlovid um, feeling better about their prospects because they got Paxlovid. Right. That's a very important point. Um, <clears throat> that that paper was also a VA study, so it was a not the population was not necessarily representative of the of, of the ran, of the random population. All right, Dr. Schwartzberg, uh, we're going to leave it there for today. Always good to talk to you. Thank you, and always good to talk to you too, Brian. Dr. John Swartzberg is Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. He joins us Mondays after 7.30 news headlines to go over the latest COVID-19 news and science, and most importantly, to answer your questions if you don't get through on the phones or don't like to talk on the phone. You can always send us a question via email to upfront at kpfa.org. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org, or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>